your Bibles once again and turn to the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. The book of Ezra, chapter 10. We're, we're going to be finishing up Ezra this morning, but you know, as we said at the very uh, beginning of our study on Ezra and Nehemiah, actually, originally, these two books were one. So we're only halfway through, actually. <laughs> we're not really coming to the end. But Ezra, chapter 10, uh, let us listen to God's word this morning. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of the Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites in all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Israel withdrew from before excuse me, then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twelfth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land, and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a heavy time of uh, it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come and uh, at the appointed times and with them the elders and the judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only uh, Jonathan, the son of uh, Asahel and Jehaziel, Jehaziah, excuse me, the son of Tikvah opposed this and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priests selected men, heads of how fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, 
they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign wives. Now, I'm not going to read the list, but then in God in his wisdom listed every person who had transgressed by intermarrying. But it is important as you look at this list in verses uh, 20, uh, excuse me, 18 through 19, it talks about the high priest's family. Verses 20 through 22 talks about the other priests. Verse 24 talks about the Levites who had sinned against the Lord. Verse 24 talks about uh, the singers and the gatekeepers who transgressed against the Lord. And then uh, verses 25 through 43 talks about uh, the people of Israel who have transgressed. And then the chapter closes. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's uh, look at this passage, but before we do, let's go to the Lord and ask for His blessing on our time together. Lord, we thank You so much as we come to this text that You have uh, placed it here uh, in Ezra for the benefit of Your people throughout the ages, and including us today. And so we pray that You would uh, speak to us, that You would teach and instruct our hearts, uh, but Lord, that You would work in a way that where you would grant us the repentance that we need. Uh, Lord, even for the sins that we have committed, uh, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, I want uh, to repeat what I said that, uh, last week, that while, you know, as you look at Ezra 10, it really goes along with Ezra 9. And I'm sorry, I wish I could have had, uh, we would have had a long enough worship service to preach both chapters together, but we didn't. So we've had to break it up into two. But it's easy to think that Ezra 9 and 10 is all about intermarriage. And you can go back and listen to my sermon from last week if you want to know what we mean by that. But we're not talking about intermarriage in terms of race, but in terms of faith. And, uh, and, and yet while that can be our temptation to think that's what these chapters are about, that's not really completely true. Ezra 9 and 10 really address the problem of sin in the midst of God's people in the Old Testament church. And uh, intermarriage is only the presenting problem. It could have been the sin of idolatry. It could have been the sin of lust. It could have been the sin of any number of things. But, but he, he chose intermarriage. And, and, uh, but willful sin in the covenant community is the root issue. And so the text before us is seeking to deal with sin. It's not here to tell us everything there is to know about intermarriage. And I say that because some people have taken this passage incorrectly to, as a proof text for uh, believers uh, divorcing unbelieving spouses. Even though it goes against what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Even though it goes against the example of Nehemiah, which he will deal with the same issue, but he deals with it in a little bit different way. Also, some people, as they come to this text, are very disturbed by the way that the unbelieving wives and the children are treated. And so, you know, because the Bible doesn't really address that, because that's not the main topic. And if we look at the text uh, to explain everything about intermarriage and divorce and how to treat your family, it's understandable that we might be confused and frustrated because that's not the main focus of these chapters. But 
If we understand Ezra 9 and 10 to be addressing willful sin by Israel against God, then the chapters make more sense. So keep that in mind as we go through the text today. Uh, specifically, I want us to look at what it means to truly repent. To truly repent. Um, do you feel like if someone were to come to you and say, well, what is repentance? You know, maybe somebody who's a, a baby Christian, they come to you and they say, what does it mean to repent? Do you feel like you could give them a, a good biblical answer? You know, many people today, and I, and I would even say many Christians today, act as if repentance simply means to say, I'm sorry. And, and, and to shed a few tears and to promise not to commit that sin again. And then to go on their merry way. I know whenever kids come up to me and they say to me, uh, Pastor Rick or... Papa or whoever they are in relation to me, they say, I'm sorry. I'll say, well, that's nice. You know, because that doesn't, that's not really true repentance. That's just a, a, admitting that, you know, I, I've done something wrong. Repentance is much more than that. Uh, and as we look at Ezra's example, we'll see that it's much more than that. If I could sort of recap uh, from Ezra 9, for those of you that were not here last week, Ezra has just returned it's been about four months, and he's gotten back with the second group of exiles. And uh, they've been in the city, and it doesn't really tell us what Ezra has been doing, but back uh, earlier on in the book of Ezra, uh, it describes Ezra as a man of the Word of God. And he has come to, uh, to, to preach. He's come to, to bring revitalization to the covenant community. In the same way that the first group of exiles came and rebuilt the temple and reestablished that temple worship, Ezra was to come back and to build up the community that they might be a, a holy community to the Lord. And, and so many believe that Ezra had been preaching those four months uh, and preaching the word. But what we do know is, is Ezra 9.1, that the leaders, the local leaders, came to Ezra and said, we have sinned against the Lord. We have sinned against the Lord. In a mighty way, we have, we have intermarried with those pagan nations around us. And many have wives that are not worshiping Yahweh, that are, are leading astray the hearts of their families and stuff. And so Ezra, you know, he, he laments over this. And uh, it says that he, first of all, he blushes over the sins. And he said, Lord, we have sinned against you. And which is interesting language because Ezra had not committed this sin. But I think the thing that we have to remember, and I'm not sure I pointed this out last week, is Ezra was a priest. And so Ezra was acting on behalf of the people. He represented the people to God. Just like a prophet represents God to the people and speaks the word of the Lord to his people on behalf of God, the priest then, you know, pleads the people's part. And, and so here is, is Ezra, and he's a priest that stands between the people of God, interceding on the, their behalf, and he understood that God is a holy God, and the people were rebellious in their sin against the Lord. And then second of all, as, as Ezra is, is giving this prayer of confession, he not only acknowledges the people's sin, but even the fact that they come from a long heritage of Israelites who have sinned. And, and actually the sin of intermarriage has been part of their history. It's sort of been their besetting sin in one sense as a nation. And as a result of that, God has, 
had sent them into exile. But then Ezra, as he's going on in his prayer, uh, he recognizes that God is gracious, as God is in our sins. Is he not, brothers and sisters? And, and the Lord, even though the people have sinned, God uh, kept a remnant of people that would return and not only repair the temple, but would return to be a people who would be ruled by God's word. And then finally, though, Ezra in his prayer acknowledges that uh, his grief over the fact that the people did not respond in thankful obedience to the Lord. As they returned, having experienced God's grace, they didn't respond with thankful obedience, but instead with faithlessness. You know, and don't we sometimes uh, see that today in the church? That you have even Christians who, as you talk about obedience to the Word of God, as you talk about what God commands us to do in His Word, you know, those same those Christians will say to you, Oh, you're just legalistic. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. And oftentimes when, when they say that and the emphasis is on grace rather than, than obedience, that oftentimes then that means that they have neglected the Word of God. And when we neglect the Word of God, what happens is it dulls the spiritual senses. But that wasn't Ezra. Ezra was a man whose conscience was very softened by the Word of God. He knew the Word of God and was zealous to do it. And so he understood. Uh, if you look back at Ezra 9, verses 1 and 2, uh, as, as the leaders are bringing uh, these charges against Israel, let me read to you now from Deuteronomy 7, as you're sort of looking at Ezra 9. Deuteronomy 7, and, and Ezra would have known this passage. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall not, or you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You see sort of the similarities in those verses in Ezra 9? You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me and to serve other gods. Then the anger of God would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. And so that's what's in Ezra's mind as, as he's hearing what the people had done. And so Ezra doesn't take sin lightly. He understands that the people's unfaithfulness threatened the very existence of the remnant who had returned because God is not just a loving and a compassionate God, but he's also a just and a holy God as well. The other thing that, that Ezra recognizes as well is just the sin of, of the individuals uh, and how that affects the covenant community. We don't get that as a nation. As Americans, you know, we hear things like, I can remember when President Clinton was in office, you know, we heard things like, well, it doesn't matter what the president does with a female intern, you know, as long as he does that in private. You know, he has his public life, as long as he does his job, he can do whatever he wants in his private life. It just doesn't really matter. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Actually, the Bible teaches the complete opposite. It teaches that the sin of the individual does affect the community. And one example of that is Achan. After they conquered Jericho, God said, 
do not take any of the holy things for yourself, but give those to the Lord. And Achan took some of the treasures and he hid those. And because of that, God's hand was turned against Israel. And there were men who actually lost their lives because of Achan's sin when they went up against Ai to defeat the city. And but God eventually exposed Achan for his sin and he was punished for that. Well, instead of Ezra sort of whipping these rebellious people into action, what he does, and this is rather interesting, is he pricks their conscience to the point at which they now act, uh, urge him to act. We see that in, in, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And it begins, that section begins this way, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. You have to understand that before this, Ezra had ripped his clothes when he heard this news of the sin of the people. He had pulled the hair out of his beard and out of his head. Uh, and he was fasting before the Lord. And now we see him here weeping and casting himself down. And what we see in Ezra's example is a picture of what true repentance looks like. And in our text today, we see what true repentance looks like. And the, the point I want you to, to get this morning is repentance includes the whole person. Repentance includes the whole person, inside and out. First of all, we see a change of mind in the person when they begin to repent. That, that, and when I say in their mind, I don't mean just in their head, but also in their affections uh, as well. So that's the first point. Repentance includes a change of mind, both in the head and in the affections. Uh, let me read verse 1 in its entirety. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. You see, through Ezra's uh, godly example, they had become conscious of, of their sin. They saw how Ezra reply, uh, responded to sin, and they did so accordingly. Their, their hearts had been broken. They didn't just know that they had broken God's law, but they wept over the fact that they had broken God's law. They heard Ezra pour out his heart before the Lord. And such tears of sorrow are a hopeful sign when it comes to repentance. But, but I think it's important for us to understand and to remember that by themselves, tears are not a foolproof sign of true repentance. There's other examples in scriptures of those who have wept over the things that have happened in their lives, and yet their hearts are not truly repentant. Let me give you an example. Esau. Remember, Esau sold his birthright for just a single meal. And in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, Verse 17, the writer of Hebrews is talking about Esau, and this is what he says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17. For you know that afterwards, when he, that is when Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You see, Esau was very sorry for his sin, but he was not repentant. And and so it's not the tears that God always looks at, but the heart behind the tears that God discerns. Uh, just like we read in Psalm 51, as I 
gave my prayer. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite. Another way to translate that is repentant heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's what God desires, is that repentant heart. And know how important it is that our hearts would be affected by our sin to bring about true heartfelt repentance. Now, how do we know that the people that we read about here in verse 1 were truly repentant? How do we know that they weren't just remorseful like Esau? Well, that brings us to our second point, and that is that repentance includes the lips. It includes the lips. It includes confession of sin. It includes confession of sin. And in this case, it's a public confession of sin. Um, look, uh, well, before I, I look at our text in Ezra 10.2, um, one verse that may be very helpful just as we think about the whole idea of confession is 1 John 1.9. It's a verse that, that many of you know. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever thought about what it means when it says, if we confess? That word actually in the Greek means to, to see sin as God sees it. Maybe a better way even to put it is to agree with God regarding our sin. In other words, we see our sin as God sees it, and we agree that God is right, that we have done something atrocious in the sight of a holy God. And that's what we see in Shechaniah. Uh, Ezra 10.2 And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, uh, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Now now notice that not only did Shechaniah uh, confess that we have broken faith with our God in marrying these foreign wives, but he calls for a national covenant with God to annul the illegitimate marriages in verse 3. Now, it's also worth noting in verse 2 that Shechaniah, when he states this, and as he's confessing his sin, he does so with hope, with hope for Israel in spite of her sin. He knows the character of God, that he is a God who is long-suffering and patient. He is a God who is merciful. And so the proclamation was made that all who wished to join the, the national covenant should come to Jerusalem at a set time. We see that in verses 7 and 8. Now, I, granted, don't, don't miss what it says in verse 8. If you fail to appear, it meant excommunication from, from the assembly of Israel. So there were sort of severe consequences. Oh, and, and by the way, you would be banished from the land. You'd be put in exile as well. Now, what, what the, what, how you have to see that is that those that were calling for this national covenant took sin that seriously. They understood that the sin that Israel had committed was so severe that if a person is unrepentant and unwilling to turn from their sin, that they should be, they should be exiled. And, and despite the heavy rains, the people gathered together in response to this proclamation we see in verse 9. And then Ezra stood up and he called for a public confession from the people. 
an agreement to the covenant. Now, Ezra was definitely the speaker here, but it was the officials who had called the people to come and to gather. And Ezra identifies the root cause of the people's woes in verse 10. He said, you have broken faith. You have broken faith. You have transgressed the law of God, the commandments of God. And of course, this indicates that the people have sinned against God by disobeying His word in a, in a, uh, in a callous and an indifferent way. Um, and what's, what follows is very significant. In verse 12, it says, Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. Now, notice that, that this was done in a public setting before many witnesses. And, and it's only right that whenever sin is public, that confession and repentance should be in public too, as well. And so oftentimes you will see that in the church. You know, we don't bring everybody up before the church who has sinned. If so, guess what we would do every Sunday for the whole time? We would just be confessing sins. But if there has been a public demonstration of sin, then that requires a public confession and repentance of sin. And that's why James says, confess your faults to one another, brothers. Public confession involves acknowledging our sin before men because we know that we're sinners in the sight of God. And that's what we see in Ezra 10. But, but repentance and confession can also involve less formal confession of sin. It may be a confession of sin between another individual that you have sinned against. And so you go to them in private and you confess that. Or of course, it could be even privately confessing your sins before the Lord. But in this case, it was done publicly. Now, this is the language of a true, of true surrender and submission. And, and it's such a significant part of genuine repentance. Without it, We'll never be able to pray like the Lord taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. Until we are willing to confess that the things that we have done have been a sin against the Lord. And like the, the people in this chapter, we need to renounce our own desires and our own will. Resolving by God's grace to obey His will without murmuring. I, I love what the Heidelberg Catechism says. In answer 124, as it's addressing the Lord's Prayer and this whole, that phrase, thy will be done. It says, what does the third petition mean? The answer is, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Means, help us and all people to renounce our own wills and without any back talk to obey your will. Don't you like that? Without any back talk. I don't want to hear any sass from you. Kids, have your parents ever said, heard you... Have they ever said that to you? I don't want you to hear you sassing me. You know, you just need to do what I said. You know, well, without any back talk to obey your will, for it alone is good. And it involves helping everyone carry out his office and calling as willing and faithfully as the angels in heaven. That's a great picture because the angels are here as ministering spirits to do the will of God for those who, are the, uh, who have received salvation. They, they are here to do whatever God wants, willingly, without question. And that's the attitude that we are to have. And that sort of brings us to our last point, that repentance not only includes a, a change of mind in terms of what, you know, what we think and, and the affections, it also not only expresses itself 
through our lips, through confession. You know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So as, as, as God is working that repentance in our heart through our head and our affections, it now comes out of our mouth. But then repentance includes the will as well. If you remember, we did a study in Sunday school where we looked at the biblical understanding of the heart, you know, and Disney says, follow your heart and all that stuff. So we sort of looked at what the Bible said about the heart, and, and we really came down to the conclusion that when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about what we know intellectually, our affections, and our will are the three aspects of the heart. And, and, and so repentance includes the will as well. The final part of repentance entails actual obedience or turning from sin and living in obedience to God's command. And of course, the appropriate act of repentance is laid out in verse 11, where Ezra said, separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And, and so the people's mourning and the tears are, are followed by concrete action. The, the leaders and people of Israel do what Ezra says. If you look at verse 16, it says that they do what he says. Verse 19, it talks about how they, they made a pledge and they offered the sacrifice so that they, they did what, what they said. But, but as they're under these circumstances, they don't immediately do what they said. They, they said, actually, could we talk about this? Could we work out a proposal? And, and that might sound like your kids, you know, whenever you tell them something, and they all of a sudden become this superpower, high-powered attorney, but they want to argue with you. That's not what the people are doing, okay? Uh, what they're doing is, is they're saying, look, what you're saying is right, but it's raining out here, like heavy it's raining, and, you know, we would die if we stood out here, you know, because our sin is so great. They said this isn't a sin that could just be addressed in a day, or even in two days, it's going to take a long time. So what if we do this? What if we let the offenders appear before their elders who will then deal with the offenders on a case-by-case -case basis? And those who have taken foreign wives who are not proselytites, right, who have not converted to Judaism, but, but foreign wives who still worship their false gods and seek to lead their husbands astray, they're to put away their wives and their children by sending them back to their, their, their Canaanite families in order that, as it says in verse 14, that the fierce wrath of our God over the matter is turned away from us. And Ezra said, that's a good plan. We'll do that. But what we need to see here, and where I think we struggle oftentimes, we look at this and we see that they divorce these wives and, and, and we wrestle with that because of what we know that the Bible talks about, about divorce. But here again, like I said, this isn't telling us everything about intermarriage, but it's really talking about sin. And what do you do with your sin when you come to the point that you realize what your sin is? True repentance requires that the Jews separate themselves from their sinful ways. Whenever we, we are aware of our sin, we must turn our back on that sin. We must walk away from that sin. And that's really what the Jews were doing here. They were separating themselves from their sinful ways and their false religion. In this case, it was from their pagan wives and their children, lest they face the judgment of God. Because true repentance requires turning their backs on their sin. So when God does convict us of our sin, 
then the question is, do you merely acknowledge that sin and be sorrowful over it, or do you turn your back on your sin? Let me ask that again. When the Lord makes you aware of your sin, and maybe it's a besetting sin that you struggle with, do you merely acknowledge that sin? Do you say, yeah, I, I know that's wrong, and, and, and do you become sorrowful over that sin, or do you turn your back on that sin? Do you think, how can I get away from that sin? How can I distance myself from that sin? You see, repentance of sin is a turning from sin, along with the brokenness over sin, should come also the breaking with sin, right? Uh, with the brokenness over sin should come the breaking with sin. If, if we mourn over our sins by itself, it falls short of true conversion. As if I might quote the Heidelberg Catechism again, question 89, it said, what is the dying away of the old self? The answer is to be genuinely sorry for sin and to more and more to hate and to run away from it. Is that where we are in terms of our sin? When confronted with your sin, do you make specific plans in how you can break away from that sin? If you struggle with materialism and finding your comfort in shopping, do you still continue to look through the, the ads for all the stores to see what you can do and go shopping? If, if you struggle with alcoholism, do you still visit the bars and meet your buddies after work? They're at the bars because that's just a convenient place and they like to do that. If you struggle with lust or pornography, you know, do, do you say, I can no longer even come close to watching these kind of shows because they may stir desires within me? Do you seek to break away from that? Or, or is your attitude more of one of, well, I just want to keep that option open. If I just happen to fall into that sin, oh well, such be it. But you're not careful to stay away and to... To be that distant. A repentant heart wants to stay away from that sin. It wants to turn from that sin. Now, there were some, as we read in verse 15, who resisted that covenant. Now, there's questions amongst commentators as to whether they were really objecting to what uh, uh, the people were proposing or whether what they didn't, you know, about sending the, the wives and the children away or whether maybe they were just questioning the process. You know, um, and so it's a it's a little hard to tell, um, but it is interesting that uh, when you when you look at it, uh, Meshulam is mentioned in verse 15, but he's also mentioned in verse 29. So he may be one of those who has a foreign wife, and he doesn't want to give her up. So maybe he is, but the the text isn't clear. And you know, it's just like today. I mean, how many? Tims or how many Daniels do we have in our congregation? It doesn't necessarily mean it's the same person. It could be another Mesulam, you know, so I don't want to put too much weight on that. But there was some resistance. But the, we do know that the text says that the process of ending these marriages began on the first day of the tenth month and ended on the first day of the first month before the annual celebration of the Passover. So how long did it take? three months to deal uh, as I want to put it three months to process all the church discipline cases right that were taking place because of the sin of the people 
But the people repented. And they went through the process. And they did forsake their foreign wives. The Jews in this chapter showed a full and true repentance. It was a repentance that began inwardly, and it worked its way outwardly in a breaking with sin. These, these people returned to the Lord in their covenant with Him. And, and we should note, by the way, that inward repentance, without it manifesting itself outwardly, without an act of the will, is really incomplete repentance. And actually, so it's not really repentance at all. It might appear to be, but it's not. Likewise, if you're outwardly repentant, but it's not accompanied by inward repentance, it's mere hypocrisy. And where that sometimes can be is, is when we want to make a place for sin in our hearts. So we act like, oh yeah, I want to stop doing these things, but we don't seek to put that sin to death. We sort of coddle that sin and we sort of, you know, make a special place for it in our lives that nobody else can see, but that we can get back to if we want to. That's, that's really hypocrisy. You see, true repentance involves a turning from sin. And, and in Ezra 9, the people joined Ezra in mourning over their sin of their marriage. And now in chapter 10, we see them breaking with their sin. And even though the sin was uh, pervasive in Israel, it was a complete repentance. And, and as I said, as you look at verses 18 through 44, there were 17 priests, 6 Levites, 1 singer, 3 gatekeepers, and 84 other people. 111 people altogether who had been um, practicing this sin. And so it was fairly widespread um, because many of these were in the leaders of Israel, the people who were supposed to be teaching. And, and it's, it's really no different than us. I mean, any sin is heinous, is it not, brothers and sisters? But isn't it even worse when you see a preacher who stands up that you listen to preach the word day in and day out, and then you find out that there's secret sin in their lives? Doesn't that oftentimes decimate entire congregations? And it's no less the case here. But you can understand why Ezra, was his reaction was so radical and why they were so radical in dealing with the sin. And some might ask, well, how could people who endured 70 years of exile be so indifferent to the law of God? But could we not, brothers and sisters, ask ourselves, how could children of the living God who have received the salvation that we have received continue to sin against God? I mean, Paul talks about this in Romans 7, Galatians 5, 16. You know, we do those things that we don't want to do. And, and we know that our sinful impulses will not stop until Christ returns or we die, whichever one comes first. But in that day, we will be set free from those. But I want us just to look at a couple points of application as we close today. First of all, just to, we must always be on guard against the subtle temptation of sin. To, we must also uh, be on our guard against the subtle temptation to give up the demands of Scripture um, that it makes upon us to keep ourselves as, as holy and separate from the world. Um, that we ought not to be like the world around us. It's, it's hard to believe things so different from, it's, it's hard to believe things so different from the non-Christians around us. You know, because we oftentimes want to belong. We want to be accepted. And, and sometimes it's hard to, to stand out. And yet, we remain in the world while striving not to be of the world. 
We are God's people and set apart for his purposes. Therefore, we're holy. But the temptation to make peace with non-Christians around us is just as real for us as it was for those exiles. And the second thing I want us to see is Ezra as an example of true repentance. That there's an awareness and acknowledgement of sin as a violation of God's law. There's a genuine sorrow uh, that arises from that knowledge of our, of our sin. And, and there's also an expression of faith in God's goodness to forgive His people. And that that, uh, that knowledge then leads to a change of mind. Uh, that we have broken faith with God. It includes confession of sin and uh, making amends for the sins that we have committed. It's uh, like the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness which leads us to repentance. As we come to the Lord, we only can do so because He grants us that repentance. And the Apostle also tells us that if we do not trust in Christ's death and righteousness to save us from our sins, then we will be judged by our works. And if that happens, we are certainly to perish in eternal judgment. And while the promise of God to save sinners who trust in His Son is found in the Gospel, the law of God exposes our sin, and it, it confronts us with a demand to break off from our sins as Israel did. We cannot justify ourselves with our repentance, but as we read God's Word and we see truly the sinners that we are, as we compare ourselves with the, the law of God, the commands of God, and we see that we fall short, we have hope, just like Shechaniah had, that, it, that God is a God of mercy, that God will forgive us if we come to Him and we confess those sins, that we acknowledge we have wronged Him, and there's nothing that we can do to make that right. And that we're trusting on the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth and He died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin to then make us right with God if we will just believe Him by faith. And so repentance requires that we make confession to the Lord that our sin deserves His punishment and that we strive to break off from our sins because they offend a holy God. So let me ask you this this morning, brothers and sisters. What sin do you need to mourn over today in your own life? What sin maybe have you been sort of coddling? Or what sin have you um, not really treated as it, it really ought to be treated? You have not mourned over it. You have not wept over it. You have not fasted as Ezra has. And how do these verses encourage you to hold on to the hope that God welcomes repentant sinners who come to Him? Are you willing to repent of that sin and to turn to the Lord knowing that He is a God who is ready to receive you? Amen? And let's bow our heads and, and just meditate upon the word that was preached this morning. Uh, respond to God and silently in prayer in a way that would be appropriate for how the Spirit is dealing with your hearts even now.
Lord, as we come to you this morning, we want to give thanks to you that we have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's not only paid the penalty for our sins, he's not only provided a way for us to be with you, God, forever in heaven, but he sits at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us. He prays for us. He, he prays just like Ezra interceded on behalf of the people, so Christ intercedes for his church. Lord, may we see our sin as you see it. May we agree and see it as grievous in your sight. Oh Lord, cause us to repent of our sin and our, and our whole person to follow you and to be a holy people unto the Lord as you have created us to be, to enjoy the freedom of what it means to fellowship with you. And I pray this morning, Lord, that if there's any today within the sound of my voice that don't know you, that they might turn their hearts to you and receive your forgiveness and eternal life. We thank you, O Lord, and pray all these things in your name. Amen.